0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Electric utilities around the world are facing a host of challenges, from falling clean energy costs, climate change concerns, extreme weather events, and now mounting pressure from investors and from public policy. Not only that, there's technological advancements, changing the nature of electric grids themselves, and also changing customer demands and expectations. Today, our guest is Julia Hamm. Julia is the president and CEO of the Smart Electric Power Alliance in the US. CEPA, as it is known, is a nonprofit dedicated to helping electric power stakeholders address the most pressing issues they encounter as they pursue the transition to a clean and modern electric future and a carbon-free energy system by 2050. CEPA has recently undertaken a utility transformation survey surveying electric utilities across North America, both big and small, to understand how they are tackling the challenges they face today and the transformation needed over the coming decades. Julia, thanks for joining.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation.
0: Absolutely. Before we sort of dig into, I guess, the thrust of the topic and about how these electric utilities, particularly here in North America, but we are, they're a very good proxy for what's going on around the world. Talk about the challenges that they're facing. Perhaps just set us up a little bit and understand a bit more about the Smart Electric Power Alliance.
1: Absolutely. So the Smart Electric Power Alliance, or SEPA, as we call it, is a nonprofit that has been around almost for 30 years now. And we have Evolved quite a bit over the decades, right alongside the electric industry. When we were first founded back in the early 90s, we were focused on helping the US electric utility industry learn about and understand solar specifically. And this was back in the days in the early 90s, there actually wasn't even yet a grid connected solar market here in the US. So we were working on the ground. Um, helping with demonstration and deployment projects helping utilities gain a hands-on understanding of solar technology and as the market grew and developed helped them work through understanding how to incorporate it into their resource porfo- portfolios what the options were to have solar offerings for their customers etc then in the early uh, 2010s so in the 20s sort of 13, 14, 15 timeframe, we took a step back and said, you know, we really think as an organization that it's important. What really matters is is addressing climate change. And in order to be most impactful in doing that, we as an industry and we as an organization need to think more holistically about the challenges and opportunities in front of us as opposed to thinking about things in technology-specific silos. And as a result of that, we made the decision to significantly change and expand the organization's mission, as well as to rebrand, because actually SEPA used to stand for the Solar Electric Power Association. And then again, in 2015, 2016, we became the Smart Electric Power Alliance and embraced a vision of a carbon-free energy system by 2050 and expanded our mission to really be about helping the electric power industry go through a smart transition to a clean and modern energy future. And that's inclusive of any technology that can help mm. us get there. So that, that's how the organization has evolved. We aren't a trade association in that we don't exist to serve the interest of a specific industry or companies. We really are a mission-driven organization, but we do have a membership base, a very broad membership base that is primarily domestic, although there are some international members as well. But our members include the significant majority of electric utilities in the U.S., and that's across investor-owned public power and rural electric co-ops. It also includes almost 75% of the public utility commissions at the state level that regulate the utility industry. And it includes hundreds of corporations and other entities, be it product manufacturers, project developers, large energy consumers like the Googles and Microsofts and Amazons of the world, all who have an interest in collaborating to help us accelerate this transition to a carbon-free energy system,
0: and I think that's so fascinating about the organisation and kind of where you're sat is that you're you are at the, the confluence of all of these different stakeholders, which gives us a nice broad overview of what the trends are, what the challenges are, and how different organisations are looking to tackle it. Exactly. Before we talk kind of you know a route to a carbon-free future 2050, I think it's really important to say that irrespective of any given utility power producer, power consumer, their beliefs around that and their desires around that. Right now, electric utilities around the world, particularly, but particularly here in the US, I mean, are facing real challenges, right? We can see the pressure on market capitalizations, from disruption from other industries. Can we zoom in on that? Right now, what are the challenges that are facing utilities? What are the drivers behind them?
1: As you say, there, there are many, right? I mean, and I think one of the most important Points for listeners to understand again is that there are different types of utilities within the U.S. There are investor owned utilities, there are public power or municipally owned utilities, and then there are rural co ops, which are actually owned by all of the customers directly. But the significant majority of customers in the U.S. are served by investor owned utilities. And it's important to understand that. The utility business is a very highly regulated industry. So I mentioned earlier that state public utility commissions, that that about 75% of those are actively engaged and members of our organization. And a big part of the challenge for this transformation for utilities is the fact that they are highly regulated. So by design, they are risk averse. By design, they Make very sort of slow, intentional changes as opposed to moving rapidly. And again, ties very closely to the risk aversion. So, not only is the the utility business model, right? I mean, the utility business model essentially has been all about selling kilowatt hours to customers. So, you know, you sort of incentivize to sell as much of your product as you can, which is logical, but also to make investments in the grid that they earn a return on. And the changes that we're seeing challenge both of those components of their business model, right? So as we're talking about more efficiency, cleaner, we're we're really looking to actually help customers buy less power. And so again, sort of which challenges that that Mm -hmm. model of utilities sort of financially being incentivized to sell as much as they can. And then we're also talking about a world in which the typical investments that utilities have made, and, and oft, usually over very long time frames, timeframes, decade-long investments, whether that be in generation where we're still vertically integrated markets, or be it in the transmission and distribution system, a lot of the traditional grid investment opportunities now have alternatives that are emerging. So, for example, you may, uh, there may be a place where you're seeing rapid population growth, and so you need more infrastructure, essentially, to be able to serve the growing community in, in that area. And, you know, traditionally it might be things like a utility adding a new substation or upgrading a substation or transformer or specific pieces of equipment. That would sort of be the traditional approach. But in fact, now there are potential alternative approaches where rather than doing that, perhaps you can add some storage to the system. And when I say you can add storage to the system, it could be that the utility could add storage to the system at the system level, or it could be that individuals add storage to the system at the building level or the residence level. and that you can use a combination of solar and storage or solar storage and the batteries that are in EVs, for example, as we think into the future. And and so, but if the more that customers are actively engaged part of the power system, it really, again, sort of changes that dynamic and the role that, that the utility has to play. But the utility business model and the regulation that dictates the decisions that the utility makes has not evolved. So that's really one of the fundamental underlying barriers, and that's a place where SEPA spends a lot of time, is around, we sort of call it, regulatory and business innovation. We need there to be innovation in the utility business models. We need utilities to have new ways to earn revenue. And we also need the regulatory framework to change so that those who are the the people who are regulating the utility industry are able to evaluate new options and give utilities and other stakeholders approval to do things in a way differently than they've done them in the past
0: yeah it's fascinating isn't it because we'll come on to it but you've got kind of organizations that are set up to be supply-focused, not demand-focused. You also have organizations that are used to making investments on a 30-year a time horizon. And the velocity of change now means that those kind of equations are really hard to, the MPVs are harder and harder to do because there's so much more uncertainty about what the future will look like, not even 10 years down the line, but just five, because of all these different options.
1: Yeah, and another piece of that equation, and I'm probably getting a little ahead of myself because it would have come up later in our conversation, But if you think about it as sort of this is an oversimplification, but historically, you know, it was very much a one way big central station power plants. The utilities generated the power and delivered it to the customer. The customer paid their bill. End of story. Now, as I said earlier, customers have options to put solar and storage in their homes. They have smart thermostats. They have all of these program options on how to sort of be better energy manage- managers within their own home or their own business. There's just this whole, and essentially what that from a distribute if you think about it from a distribution system level, customers now just expedite as time goes on and technology advances, customers are making decisions that will directly impact the investments that are needed in the distribution system. So it is very challenging for a utility who has to make 30-year investment decisions now about the distribution system. They essentially have to be able to now forecast what decisions their customers are going to make. And that is a very new dynamic Mm -hmm. for them because they used to be in control of those decisions about what went on or off the system, but now their customers are making those decisions. So, utilities need this whole new capability in terms of, for example, forecasting customer behavior, mm-hmm. a whole new capability around uh, the ability to use AI, data analytics to inform, you know, sort of how do you use past customer behavior to forecast future customer behavior, for example. And it's it just requiring a significant Shift not only in both in mindset and actual skill yeah, set. Yeah,
0: There's significant human capital, dare I say, challenges to that as well, right? Not least, you know how they mm-hmm. how they designed and incent in, in, as organisations, and actually to that point, there's a very stark statement in your utility transformation report or survey about, you know, utilities must confront the choice between integrating with distributed energy resources or lose that value that they could get from customers, which is quite a stark statement. But just before we move on to kind of these, how utilities are going to, or some utilities are going to start thinking about this transformation and are indeed tackling it. At a more prosaic level, the immediate things in front of the board of utility right now are some fascinating things when you start thinking about it. Obviously we've got falling Costs for clean energy that has a you know, and then there's also kind of the the legacy geographical and generation setup that each utility has that can determine how they can respond to these things. You know, if you if you're far away from any wind wind or solar resources or whatever it might be, hydro resources, that that really determines some of your success in being able to ma- manage this transformation.
1: Yeah, and on top of that, it's important to take into consideration. You know, many utilities have existing generating facilities or whether they own them or whether they have long term contracts to procure from these facilities you know coal plants you know other facilities that are not yet at the end of their useful life and so another big challenge in front of the utility industry in particular is you know how do you deal with early retirements and and do that in a cost effective way for customers
0: yeah especially when you're facing Reduced uh, investment, higher cost of capital because of changes in public policy and investor sentiment as well, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So you've got, roughly speaking, you've got this, an immediate challenge of changing customer behaviors, falling prices in a lot of these, um, in both new technologies, whether that's EVs in terms of storage, but also in um, clean energy production. You've got this pressure from investors, public, you know, with the change of administration as well, increased public policy change pressure. What, so can you just, before we start talking about sort of the nature of how organizations are going to transform it, can you just give us two seconds on kind of your, because you've just done a big survey around this. Can you just frame that for us?
1: I will. But before I do that, you, you you just listed off a great list of the drivers, but I want to mention one that was missing that is very important. And that is the large global Corporations that are the largest energy users, essentially the largest utility customers. It is the Googles, the Amazons of the world who, for you know, are really passionate about their sustainability commitments and making sure that they are leading in this space. And so that is a huge driver for utilities, right? I mean, many utilities get significant revenue from these large Corporations as their customers. So the commitments that the customers are making are a huge driver as well, uh, really pushing the utilities beyond uh, their historical way of thinking.
0: This is certainly something that's come up time and time again on our podcast. Also, arguably, a potential source of huge disruption because there is the capacity for the likes of Amazon and Google, these organizations that are already in our homes with electric devices, you know, who know a lot about our behaviors, to at some point presumably say, if your utility isn't meeting your needs, we can do it without having to engage in the local grid. Is that a a future possibility?
1: It certainly is. I think it's a big question around whether those companies are going to become, and we'll talk about partnership later because it is an important part of this report you've referenced a few times, but there's a big question around whether those types of companies will become critical, integral partners for utilities, and together they will help solve these challenges, or whether util- you know if utilities can't move fast enough, these big tech companies, as we've seen in, in many other spaces, will come to the forefront with new solutions.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to that section. Okay. So, so can you quickly frame up, I guess, the, the survey and then walk us through... We'll term the four dimensions of transformation that these utilities are going to have to embrace or are embracing.
1: Absolutely. So for more than a decade, for for almost two decades, actually, on an annual basis, we have surveyed the U.S. utility industry. But historically, we started out originally surveying them about their annual solar interconnections to their system. And then a few, a few years later, we started also doing the same thing related to energy storage, and then we also started to do the same thing related to demand response. And about two years ago, we said, you know, similar to the, the evolution that I described earlier in terms of SEPA as an organization, this the surveying work that we did followed a similar evolution. And so... A couple of years ago, we took a step back and said, you know, as opposed to serving utilities about technologies and resources in these silos and doing um, analysis on each resource independently, it makes it, it makes sense for us to, to re-envision what it is that we are serving the utility industry about in order to provide a more holistic perspective on where the utility industry as a whole is, as well as individual utilities, where they are, in their progress uh, towards a clean and modern energy system that will ultimately lead us to a carbon-free energy system. So last summer, in the summer of 2020, uh, we put out the survey to the U.S. utility industry. Uh, I should mention this was focused specifically just on distribution utilities, um, so this did not include transmission or other entities that are uh, really focused on, on generation, the generation transmission side of things, fo- focused exclusively on distribution. So we put out a survey to the distribution utilities. We had more than 100 utilities actively participate in the survey, respond to the survey, representing 83 million customers, which is about 63% of the customer accounts or 63% of the meters that are out there in the US. So really strong representation of the overall U.S. utility industry. And we asked questions on a whole variety of topics, but essentially, they all roll up into three cat- or four categories that we were looking to assess. And those categories are uh, clean energy resources, corporate leadership, modern grid enablement, and aligned actions and engagement. And I'll just quickly sort of help you understand what, what each of those really means. So in terms of the clean energy resources, obviously, it is how much of their the energy that they are providing to customers is clean. But it goes beyond that. We also looked at what are utilities doing in terms of including demand flexibility and energy efficiency into their clean energy resource mm. portfolio. Um, so it's not just about what percentage of their of their energy is coming from wind, solar, hydro, et cetera, but really what are they doing in addition to that to integrate essentially the th- all the things that customers can do and the things that they can do working with customers to get to a cleaner portfolio. So that was the clean energy resources bucket.
0: It definitely ties closely with that modern grids. But okay, so on the, on the clean energy resources, it was quite striking how... Little penetration there really was so far, right? I think it was 18% of those utilities had 50% or higher clean energy contribution to their overall load that they were generating. There's quite a ways to go there, right?
1: There is a long ways to go. And, and, and it is important to understand that there are pretty significant regional, and you mentioned this this very early on in our conversation, there are pretty significant regional differences in the resources that are available to utilities. So there are some parts of the country, for example, in in the Pacific Northwest, they, for a long time, have had amazing hydro resources. So there are many utilities in the Pacific Northwest that have had a very clean energy portfolio for a long time, thanks to the hydro that they have access to. There are other parts of the country that are fortunate to have both very strong wind and solar resources. and so they've made great advances just in more recent years in cleaning up their energy portfolio. But there are other parts of the country where they may not they don't have hydro, they may not have great wind, they're getting started in solar, but it's still early days. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, that 18% that you cited is, is a national number. You know, 18% have greater than 50% of their total retail, retail supply coming from clean energy. Uh, but it shouldn't be too much of a surprise because when we look at the national energy mix, Renewables, it, the number's growing, but it, it's still relatively small. And um, I think the most recent data, you know, has renewables, including hydro, at somewhere around twenty percent. Then, when you add nuclear in, that number obviously goes up quite a bit. But we still have a long way to go. There, you know, we're seeing coal retirements, but there are still a, there's still a lot of active coal plants out there in the country, and so. Yeah, so we still have a lot. We're, yeah. we're making progress, but still a long way to go in making in getting to that carbon-free energy system.
0: That's clear. The second pillar, I want to leave sort of corporate leadership and and the alignment with all of the stakeholders to the last. That because there is that connectivity to the modern grid. Because you mentioned it there, this sort of dem- demand-side management batteries, like integrating the clean energy resources at the local level or you know, in your household, back to the utility itself, which it in turn requires that grid modernization, managing that digitization exactly. ultimate. And this is kind of something we hear a lot about just, you know, on the search side, right, or on the on the talent side, as being incredibly difficult to do, incredibly technologically intensive. You know, these aren't necessarily, all these solutions aren't in place for all these organizations to implement right now. Can you just walk us through what you, I guess, what you mean by a modern grid, what that looks like and how it starts to sort of integrate all these different, these distributed energy resources and create a different way of managing that customer demand. And it's like you said at the start, ultimately decreasing customer demand.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is a huge component of modern grid enablement that is that is specific to the technology, right? We actually need to have the technology in place that, that enables all of this to happen, whether it's you know, smart meters or distributed energy management systems. DERMs is the term that's often used in the industry. Uh, So there's a lot of technology in there. But equally important, actually, are elements related to how we plan and operate the system. And so it does tie back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of how do you ensure that when you're making investment decisions that are in 20 and 30 year timeframes, that you are planning those investments with the right assumptions around the things that the customers are going to be doing that are impacting the system. So that's just the one example I used earlier. But, you know, and and in many cases, it's things that customers will, will do, but it's also things that the utility will do itself. So it is um, again going back to what I mentioned earlier about the alternatives in terms of where maybe before you would have upgraded a substation or a transformer, instead now you might put in some some battery storage at a specific point on the system. So how do you how do you look at those alternative or those new emerging options that are available and really compare to the traditional approach and and make the right decision for the system and the customers, and begin operating the system in a different way as well. So it's both planning and operating. And one of the biggest challenges from an operational standpoint gets to visibility. So as we have more customers who are connecting solar and storage and they have their EVs in their garage, right now, in most cases, The utilities who are responsible for managing the system and creating the balance between supply and demand don't have visibility into those assets that the customers have deployed. So it becomes increasingly challenging to balance the system without that visibility and what we would call behind the meter, the things that the customer is doing. And so that's another piece of what, uh, another challenge that the industry is working to overcome is is how do you begin to ensure that you have that visibility? And it's actually at two levels. There's one level, which was what I just described in terms of the distribution utility, having the visibility and what's happening at, down at the customer level. But then there is the next level up from that, which is... That the where we have independent system operators, regional independent system operators or or regional transmission authority uh, organizations, ISOs and RTOs, they often do not have the visibility down to the distribution system level. So those ISOs and RTOs are coordinating across multiple distribution systems but don't have the necessary visibility to what these distributed energy resources are doing down at the distribution system level in order to balance things on a macro level. So there's sort of two levels of visibility and transparency that yet don't exist in a way that they need to in order to make sure that the system is being operated cost-effectively, which is critical because affordability of energy to customers is absolutely top of mind. And then also reliably, yeah. right? We need to make sure that with all of these changes that are happening, we continue to have affordable and reliable electricity. So those those are always, and, you know, sort of now it's sort of affordable, reliable, safe is, has always been the third piece of that. And now clean is mm. the fourth. So it's this continuous balancing of every change. We need to make sure that it is not unintentionally and negatively impacting safety, affordability, reliability, or how clean it is.
0: Sitting here in Texas, where we've recently learned all about how when frequencies drop, so does reliability. I assume at the moment, that means that essentially, at all levels, you're kind of solving for that peak demand, right? You are Because you need to maintain the grid reliability, which itself has a huge cost on the system. Is there anything I find this fascinating, because lots of the technologies that are going into the home around how we use, you know, consumer electricity, whether that's storage, whether that's these smart thermostats, smart devices, all these things are actually global products, often designed and produced in, in other countries. Are there gr- any grids around the world that the U.S. can look to that have tackled or are further ahead in terms of getting that end-to-end visibility and micro balancing?
1: Yes, you know, I'm not going to point to a single market or or country, but certainly there are countries that are farther ahead in different pieces, right? It, I don't know that any no one country has it all figured out. But I think that's the biggest challenge if 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 somebody had it all figured out, we could all just follow their lead. But actually in recognition of, of what you're what you're suggesting, one of the things that SEPA does Normally, every year, although COVID has has disrupted that, but typically, we take a group of U.S. energy executives abroad every year and spend a week deeply immersing those utility executives in what's happening in another market in order to be able to learn from them and bring back lessons to the U.S., so we've been doing that since 2008. So we've been to Germany three times. We've been to Italy. We've been to Spain. We've been to Japan twice. We've been to Australia. We've been to England. I'm forgetting other places. <laughs> but Greece, uh, you know, so we've we've traveled all over the world um, to, to learn from what other countries in the places where other countries either are farther ahead and, and have figured some things out we haven't. Or even in some cases, to learn maybe what not to do, right? There's always sort of both sides of that equation. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I'm not going to point to a specific market and say, you know, here's, who, here's who's figured it out. But, you know, certainly there are many countries in Germany that when you look at the deployment of distributed energy resources, they are at much higher penetration levels mm. than we are. The same is true in Australia. Australia- um, has very significant deployment of rooftop solar, as an example, and so th- there is a lot to be learned from their experiences.
0: And I think you're right in terms of different countries, different markets have, have sort of tackled segments of it. You know, from the trading community, there at least is this, also this idea that if you could figure that out, if you could truly understand that sort of, you get the demand side management right and understand down to the household level, sort of how different can you know, how how consumers are using power. That's a huge opportunity as well, on the commercial side for whomever it might be wanting to deploy assets as well. so there's I assume there's lots of people focused on this at the moment,
1: yeah, absolutely, right. I think we're seeing a lot of interest in our industry, even from non-traditional players, right not we've talked about the big tech companies earlier, but it's not just the big tech companies. I think there is a recognition that there is a big opportunity in the energy space, especially as we now have this new Significantly ambitious carbon uh, reduction goal in mind at a federal level. That there's just a lot of opportunity in our space.
0: Yeah, and we're definitely seeing that, as you say, lots of different types of participants looking at it. And I want to come on to an, um, about what's going to sort of slow or speed all this this transformation up. But I think that gives us a really good idea of the the clean energy resources aspect, the the, the modern grid nature of of, of what's facing uh, utilities and what they're thinking about. What does it mean for corporate leadership?
1: So when I think about the question you've been asking about what are the things that are going to slow this down or, or accelerate it, corporate leadership for me is one of the absolute keys to all of this. As I said earlier, the utility industry is highly regulated. It's traditionally been very risk averse. And it is like it's it's turning a big ship. It's gonna t- you know it, ta- it can take a very long time, and in order to successfully turn the ship at any speed, but especially to turn the ship quickly, it is going to require a degree of corporate leadership and culture change that is is almost unprecedented, certainly unprecedented in the energy industry. You know we need the most senior levels within this industry to be wholeheartedly embracing the need for the transition and working through the ways in which they're not only, they're they're making the commitment at the highest level with their, for example, with their carbon reduction goals, but that it can't just be the goal, right? There have to be tangible action steps associated with those goals. They have to figure out how to tie, for example, how do we tie corporate incentive pay to carbon reduction progress? You know, how do we really instill the culture of innovation within an industry that historically hasn't been about innovation? It's been about safe, reliable, consistent delivery of power. And, and so you know, that's where I see corporate leadership just being such a key to all of this.
0: Yeah. And it's tough, isn't it? Because also, as we've just alluded to, if you're a power executive or you know professional, there's lots of other opportunities right now than going into a traditional utility. And frankly, some of the politics are also there as well. This might be a, a more philosophical question have we because one of the things about i guess corporate leadership and the stakeholder leadership around these um, electric utilities especially those that might be smaller more in the, the center of the US for example have we managed to move beyond kind of a post are we post climate change driven and actually the arguments can be reframed as irrespective as to whether your stakeholders are entirely understand the challenge of climate change and want to tackle it or actually, you can just make the arguments more sort of close to home and irrespective of whether the particular leadership might be, I dare state, hate to say it, but sort of climate change believers, are they able to say, look, irrespective of that, we still face these immediate challenges. This, whatever you believe, clean energy is still dropping in price. C- c- your mm-hmm. customers' beliefs are changing to varying degrees. And you still face the same problems, whether or not your stakeholders are, have a climate change on their, their mm-hmm. agenda. Is that a fair question.
1: It is a fair question. And my reaction to that would be that yes, those other non-environmental drivers will get us a very long way with all utilities, regardless of where they are, what, whatever the circumstances might be. Because you're right, in, in many parts of the country now, wind and solar are the lowest cost resource. So just from a financial standpoint, as utilities are looking to procure new resources, wind and solar in most cases are going to win out just, you know, when, when there is an all-source procurement done. So that's going to happen. You know, utilities, no matter what they believe about climate change or don't believe about climate change— know they need to listen to their big corporate customers. So if their corporate customers are telling them, you need, you know, we need this option from you, they will create that option, that clean option, or an alternative, some other option beyond what was available before. I think the challenge comes with the fact that those things will not get us all the way to carbon-free. They will get us well down the road. And it is this balancing act of, Everyone needs to be taking action now. And, you know, so what matters is the actions you're taking today, but you also need to to know where you're going and preparing to to get to a longer-term vision. So all of those near-term things that are not, that are just, it's just sound business decisions will get us significantly far down the road towards, or get significant carbon reduction uh, accomplished. But it won't get us to carbon free, and that's that's a challenge that this industry is talking about more and more and more. Is that for many? Again, there's a, there's a significant regional difference, but for many parts of the country, there is very clear line of sight on how to get to seventy or eighty percent carbon reduction in a reasonable time frame. The problem is that last twenty to thirty percent, we likely need cost-effective new technologies baseload technologies you know long duration storage other things that aren't currently available or currently available in an affordable way in order to get us to carbon free and so given the time frames we're talking about all of this needing to happen from a, a climate change impact standpoint We have to be thinking today about investment in R&D on those new technologies or, or, you know, programs to drive down the cost of technologies that may exist but aren't commercially available yet if we're going to actually be able to deploy those resources in the 2030 to 2050 timeframe in order to get to a carbon-free energy system by 2050. So... Sort of a very long winded way, you know, just to answer your question to say like yes, those non environmental non climate change drivers are really important, and it's going to a lot of this is going to happen on its own because of that, but those things won't get us all the way to where we need to get to
0: yeah, thank you so the the final pillar there is the alignment piece, which I guess in some ways speak to itself, and you've kind of it's been the theme driving throughout around the fact that actually all of these things have to All of those various big ships from regulation to the consumer demands, to the utility themselves, to policy, all has to move together in the right direction to actually support all of these incremental changes that are needed.
1: Yeah. And the bottom line is is that utilities cannot do this alone. So what we are seeing increasingly is that utilities are going to need to leverage strategic partnerships to facilitate the transformation. You know, utilities have some things, they are phenomenal, they are best in class, best in world at. There are other things they're not great at that just, they've just never had to do, they didn't need the skill sets for. And the fastest way to accomplish some of those things will be through partnerships with others who are best in class and best in world in other things that they aren't necessarily good at. And, and that this is actually one of my favorite pieces out of this study that we did was showing that the utilities who are farthest along in their progress towards a clean and modern energy system actually have quite significant it's a big differentiator between the partnerships that they have relative to the partnerships that the rest of the, the utility industry has so it's things like you know utilities that are really excelling at clean and modern. Are utilities who, for example, have uh, part, formal partnerships with universities to run innovation centers. It is, uh, you know, utilities who are partnering and funding start technology startup companies, you know, and or that have their own internal R&D department, but are partnering that up with sort of other startup um, outside the company to, to sort of leverage each other's experience. So it's, it's, it's really, it was really one of this, I guess it makes sense now that I've seen it. But one of the things I wasn't necessarily expecting as an outcome of the study that I was really interested to see was that it was a clear differentiator between the utilities who are doing really well at clean and modern have made the most progress and those that haven't. The ones who are leading are really working outside the four walls of the utility far more than the rest of the industry is.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Um, so I kind of want to move on to the the sort of accelerators and decelerators about how long, because in some ways, whilst 2050 didn't sound, sounded quite progressive a year and a half ago, now it sounds you know quite quite a, quite a long time out, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe on just focusing on the accelerator piece, or, or it's all the same thing really. One of the things that seems to me that could really drive this is really about kind of consumer expectations and also consumer incentives. So I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit here, but you know, growing up in the UK, we had, I think I remember <laughs> rightly remember it was called Economy Seven which essentially meant that power was cheaper overnight, which also meant that no one could go to sleep because we spent all night with the washing machine and the dishwasher going. If those kind of um, incentives can start getting baked in at the household level where people are getting rewarded for putting power back into the grid via their solar resources or whatever it might be, I mean, that could be a huge accelerator to this change. Is that a fair statement? And, and how far along are it is. are we in general on, on sort of being able to start offering those types of services?
1: It's definitely, you know, in the works across the country, but we are we have a long way to go, right? So it's, we often talk about time of use rates, essentially, sort of that's the industry lingo for what you just des- described, right? That power is is cheaper or more expensive at different Times of the day, uh, based on a whole variety of different factors, and and so we are seeing a, a lot of interest in the idea of time of use rates. The utilities are beginning to play with the idea of subscription pricing. So utilities are are really trying to start thinking outside the box about pricing models generally that will influence customer behavior. But part of that goes back to. regulatory construct, right? And really getting the regulators comfortable with these new pricing models because they're again sort of shifting to some new pricing model increases risk for customers, right? There if there isn't a, you know, if there hasn't been a large pool of customers who have already sort of they can point to saying this is working over here and it's driving the behavior we want and it's lowering customers' bills then there's a hesitancy to approve those types of those um, proposals for changes to pricing structures. Another really critical part of this that I want to make sure we don't skip out on talking about is around transportation electrification. And so as we see more and more electric vehicles, this is where the utility industry is really trying to get ahead of things and ensure that so just imagine if if if, util- if there was no change today and, and we just sort of kept operating as is in terms of pricing and sort of the d- dynamics of, of delivering and paying for electricity and COVID goes away and people start going back to an office for work and people are, as they buy new cars, they're buying EVs instead of their old internal combustion engine car. Then suddenly we have all of these EVs on the road, both customers and fleets of vehicles owned by businesses, but in, on, let's just make, for simplicity's sake, let's talk about single passenger cars, the cars owned by us people, as opposed to businesses, even though fleets actually have a bigger opportunity for impact. But let's just talk about, you know, sort of personal vehicles. If, if, if we get to a point where whatever percentage, 25% or 50% of vehicles are all electric, and people go to work during the day, and then everybody comes home and plugs in their EV into their garage, you know, around the same time, that's going to have a drastic impact on the system peak. So we've got to prevent that from happening. And so utilities are really trying to get ahead of this and think about what does that mean, not only in terms of pricing structures, but where do we need to build out the EV charging infrastructure? and and I, I always like to give this because again, I think it's a really easy example to understand. But like in California, there is a significant amount of solar in the state of California to the point where most many days of the year, during the middle of the day, there is being there's more power being produced than is actually being used. So there's more supply than there is demand in the middle of the day because of all of the solar generation. So if you think about that, you say, well, wait a minute, like, we should want people to charge their EVs at work, so that they're using that solar generation at the time that it's being produced, as opposed to having to add storage more, even even more, we will need storage, but add even more storage to the system in order to be able to save that electricity for use later. So, but you know there are other places where maybe you've got a lot of wind at night, and if you've got a lot of wind at night, you want you do want people to charge their car at home, but you don't want them to plug it in as soon as the, You don't want them to start charging as soon as they get home from work. You might want them to plug it in, but for the system to be smart enough to know, don't start charging until 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. or whatever the time is.
0: Yeah. And there's almost, we talked about it on this podcast in previous episodes as well. Like this idea that customers might start yielding over their control of charging of their EV Mm -hmm. to whomever, you know, maybe their utility, maybe Amazon or maybe, uh, you know, Tesla, because they're better able in a grid wide system to balance it if they know your your behaviors and so forth. And that can then get incented.
1: Yeah. And especially as long as customers can set. From the get-go, their sort of threshold points, right? Like I, yeah. <laughs> no matter what, I always want to make sure my car is charged enough that I can get to the nearest emergency room, or you know, whatever right. it might be. There are ways to protect customers and and still be comfortable enough to generally give over control of of how how and when the car is charged in a way that the customers can benefit financially, but it also helps the system, and ultimately, if that's done well. Then it can drive down the system costs for all customers, and it gets back to that keeping things affordable piece
0: mm. and just so I understand this is a live discussion at the board level in all of these uti- most of these utilities. this is this is being thought about, addressed right now
1: absolutely yeah transport yeah, the the electrification both of of transportation and buildings you know it's it's sort of started with transportation, but now increasingly. The conversation is increasing in utility boardrooms and management team meetings around what's the role of utilities in building electrification, because electrification is going to be key to getting us to a carbon-free energy system, right? As, As more and more of the electricity on the system is coming from zero carbon resources, the more and more we want to be powering our cars and our buildings with that electricity.
0: So that kind of brings us nicely onto, I guess, the core accelerator or decelerator for this transformation is ultimately, at least correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think it's about policy. Because, you know, just taking it at one level, if you're a utility and you have 15 years left on your coal-fired power plant, that's a significant asset that it's going to be very difficult to deal with to shut down. Uh, for example. I guess we're we're right at the start of the Biden administration. Is policy going to be the real driver of whether it's 2040 or 2050 or indeed 2060 before we get to this carbon-free energy grid in the United States?
1: It's a good question, but I think it's a tough one (laughs) to answer. I don't know that I would say it's the primary driver, but it absolutely can be a critical accelerator. You know, because if I think back over... Recent decades, right? We've made, a, again, go back to it, we've made a lot of progress. We have a long way to go, but we've made a lot of progress. And in many cases, you know, it sort of depends at what point in time we're looking at. You know, corporations, as I've mentioned a couple of times, corporations and their sustainability commitments have been a huge driver in the past decade. That has nothing to do with policy, but yet that has been a huge driver. But there are many policy things that can sort of leverage. The desires and interests of the corporations that will help accelerate the the transition, and also when we're talking about policy, I think we need to make sure that we're clear. We're not just just we're not only talking about federal policy, because for the past twenty years, and many 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 of those years in the past twenty years, it has been the states that have been the primary drivers as opposed to the federal government. You know, there have been a lot of great things the federal government has done. But I think that the degree to which we're seeing federal focus on this now is unprecedented, right? The the commitment, the the ambition of the Biden administration is unprecedented when it comes to addressing climate change. So it's exciting. And it, I have no doubt it will be a massive accelerator. It would be happening regardless, maybe just not as fast.
0: Yeah. And then I guess finally is the, the technology piece. And just so I understand this there's still though irrespective of all the policy in the world and customer demand there are still technological challenges to really being able to create that modern smart grid that can at the at the individual level or the household level give entire visibility for you know vertically integrated into how we use power and also produce power
1: yes with the caveat that it is it's more about the adoption and deployment of the technology and not as much that the technology doesn't exist. So it's not as though we suddenly need some new breakthrough technology in order to make this all happen. It's that a lot of it goes back to how do you change the planning and the operating practices and procedures that I talked about earlier in order to embrace the technology that's available that can really help accelerate the change.
0: Understood. Well, it's been a really fascinating discussion. I often have attended your conferences in, uh, I guess, the last couple have been in Las Vegas. I assume we're, those are going to be starting back up this year. Is that fair?
1: Yes. So we co-own uh, North America Smart Energy Week, which is the umbrella for Solar Power International, Energy Storage International, as well as a number of other smaller components that cross across EVs, uh, storage and fuel cell, or, I'm sorry, hydrogen and fuel cells and a number of other areas. So we co-own that show with the Solar Energy Industries Association and we are very excited that we will, we had to take a break last year, but we will be back this September in New Orleans, actually, uh, the third week in September and very excited about that.
0: Fantastic. And one final thing, I guess, just to say as well, this seems to be, this is very much a global challenge and opportunity. Are you increasingly connecting to similar organizations in Europe and elsewhere?
1: <laughs> that, that, that is a great question. I'm chuckling because yeah, somebody no, we asked tee that me about up. that yesterday. <laughs> There's so much opportunity globally. We are an organization that is primarily focused domestically, just because there's still so much to be done here, and we just don't have the bandwidth to to even get everything done here that we need to get done. But I see so much potential, you know, where we could be helpful um, in other parts of the world. And Sipa is very unique. Um, so what we often hear is is that uh, from stakeholders in other countries is. A request, actually, for us to, hey, can you open a SEPA? Can you start a SEPA in my country or a SEPA chapter? Or We don't have chapters, but, you know, can you start some sort of SEPA in my country? We don't have or an organization like SEPA that pulls together all of these stakeholders to work collaboratively on these challenges. So big opportunity. When it's on my one day. Hopefully we'll get to do it list. <laughs>
0: Well, it's been an honor having you on. People can download the Utility Transformation Survey at your website. We'll include a link on the show notes. Great. And you know, thanks so much for joining us.
1: No, thanks for having me. It's been great.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offerings as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.